It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast. Since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors and in some cases where it's practical outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. When Jennifer Heinmiller inherited the million word project that would become the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, its principal author had blown past several deadlines, lost his publisher, and then died. The dictionary was a unique but expensive undertaking. It represented 85 years of research that would eventually produce a 1,225-page volume weighing about 12 pounds. Bo Emerson spoke with Heinmiller about the dictionary, and he's here to bring us this conversation. Hi, Bo. Hey, Shane. How are you? I'm good. So this is a pretty fascinating uh, scholarly work. In particular, in the front of this dictionary, there's a lot of uh, discussion of, of, of etymology and facts and things that they like. Uh, they use the term a prefixing. So if you say I come a running, that's a prefixing. I am right. hunting you. Um, and in other words, they take it down to the to the uh, linguistic level. Um, but on the other hand, the it has a, a, a real uh, bouquet of citations for, for each term. And, and it gives you, uh, they take the citations from a variety of places, from recordings that the original researcher made in the 30s and 40s and uh, in the mountains, um, from uh, Civil War letters, uh, uh, from, from fiction, from uh, a variety of places. And it really tells a lot of the story of, the, of that area, which makes it a much more uh, a, a much more approachable topic not to mention that the terms that that, that, that you learn from this thing are really hilarious yeah <laughs> yeah I bet they are I know growing up I probably heard some of those uh, those terms. oh you absolutely have Shane you're from Atlanta is that correct no I'm from uh, upstate South Carolina so oh okay well you're you're right in the middle of it yeah Walhalla and such places yes 
Yep. The, uh, uh, so you probably know what catawampus is. Oh, yes, most definitely. You know what jackleg is and what a frog strangler does. Yep. Yep. And and a frog strangler, I believe that's that's a storm, isn't it? We called it a gully washer, I think. Well, there's a variety of those <laughs> uh, those terms. A lot of weather terms in this dictionary, a lot of terms yep. for food, including I think maybe one of our writers uh, has researched a thing called a stack cake that uh, Jennifer thought had disappeared, but no, it still exists. Hmm. That's great. Well, so I mean, she must be a pretty uh, fascinating person to talk to. And uh, well, the the thing that's very annoying is that she's only thirty six years old, and she has this, uh, you know, this fantastic volume behind her, as well as a career as a Japanese translator, because she's fluent in Japanese, and uh, she also does language analysis for a financial tech company. Um, so it, it's she's uh, a very much of a polymath, and uh, and. And is also um, lives in Asheville, is part of that whole uh, Appalachian uh, world. Uh, so it's kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, and she has a podcast herself, too. Right. I think it's called Appalachian Words and you can find it on uh, Apple Podcasts and such. If you do, if you search her name in Appalachian Words, I think she's going to be the, one of the first things that pops up. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. So you can find that podcast the same place you can find this. That's um, right. Listen to ours first, though. Yes. Listen to ours first. Uh, is there anything else we should know before we uh, uh, dive into the conversation with her? I think you should just jump right on in. All right. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Bo. Thank you, Shane. So if you know what jackleg or catawampus means, you may already know how to speak Southern Appalachian, or you may want to learn more about it, in which case you need to consult a 12-pound, 10,000-entry uh, dictionary that codifies the language eight mountain states in the South. And we are lucky enough to have with us uh, the, the surviving editor and co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, Jennifer Heinmiller. Thank you so much for joining us, joining us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. And I, I should say that uh, this is a uh, a massive volume that has. Uh, this is the second edition. The first one was uh, mostly concerned with just Tennessee and North Carolina. This one expands it uh, dramatically, and it also takes advantage of the fact that. Uh, Y'all have spent about 85 years of research uh, on this project, um, which uh, is is a rather uh, a lot of effort uh, made towards creating this uh, this highly specialized dictionary. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, about the beginning of this and and how the the creation of the Smoky Mountain National Park had a lot to do with it? Yeah, that's right. Um, many decades of research have gone into this volume, and this is an expanded edition of the Dictionary of Smoky Mountain English, uh, which was published a couple of decades ago now. Um, and this new volume is about 30% larger than that one. Um, so even in the past uh, 10, 15 years, we've put a lot more work into it to really uh, make it a beautiful, polished, finished product that's more uh, encompassing of the entire region rather than just North Carolina, Tennessee. 
Um, when we were doing our research, uh, most recently, of course, that wasn't around 85 years ago, uh, but the last decade or two when I was involved in the project, we realized there was so much overlap and we really see these gradations of words and meanings throughout Southern Appalachia. So we wanted to really encompass more of that region to make it more inclusive. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the founding of Great Smoky Mountains National Park actually had quite a bit to do with the birth of this project. Um, the initial research was undertaken by Joseph Hall, who was a linguist from California, and he came over originally in the 1930s to interview the people who made their homes where the National Park is now. And this was just prior to the park being founded uh, when the United States government wanted to document some of the language and culture and tradition of the people because they knew they were going to build this national park and those people would eventually be removed from their uh, heritage lands. Which is uh, sort of an ironic reason to go into a preservation project. Uh, we are going to eliminate this community here, so we want to find out what they're like before we drive them away from their homes. I mean, that sounds a little extreme, but that's kind of what happened, isn't it? In a nutshell, yes, it is definitely ironic. But uh, uh, what, it, what we end up with is, is a remarkable document uh, about a very mythologized uh, area. Uh, the, and uh, there's, there's a lot of different uh, attitudes about uh, Appalachia or Appalachia if you grew up in New York as I did, the, uh, especially how you pronounce it in the first place. The, um, and, and, and a lot of them are, are way off base. You might, uh, as a result of the study that you've done, you could probably talk about a little bit of those. Um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's really true what you were saying, even though it is kind of an odd situation how this came to happen. We are lucky in the sense that now we do have this great record um, through the work of Hall and other people who went in either doing photography or other documentation of the region, uh, whereas, you know, other languages and varieties of language might not have that. So in a way, I'm kind of grateful to that impetus uh, for providing that basis. And now, one of the reasons uh, that you got involved is uh, you were a graduate student working with Michael Montgomery, who sort of uh, took the baton after uh, Joseph Hall uh, uh, died. And uh, he brought it up to 2019, at which point you had to take the baton. Uh, so it's kind of been a relay race to get this book to where it is now. Yeah, that's right. It, that's a very good uh, analogy. It does feel something like a relay race. Um, so the research was undertaken by Hall, of course, for all of those decades up through the 60s and 70s, really. And he published a few books on the topic, uh, but wasn't really known in the field for that uh, particular uh, branch of study. Um, although he was very interested in the phonetics of Smoky Mountain speech, as he called it. And then Michael Montgomery, uh, my co-editor, um, he decided he wanted to take Hall's work and make that the backbone of a broader volume. Um, so he really built that out. And I want to say the original volume, uh, probably between 30 and 40% of it was based on Hall's work. Um, and Hall, of course, you know, gave him his blessing and, and helped with that. Um, and then, yeah, Michael saw it to publication. And then I came on the project in late 2008, early 2009. Uh, when I was a graduate student in the linguistics program at University of South Carolina. Um, and we worked on it uh, together 
and I, I started studying lexicography, uh, which is, I guess, in a nutshell, the art and science of building dictionaries, <laughs> along with uh, my other linguistic studies. Um, and then I was named uh, co-author, co-editor around 2012, I believe, um, when we thought we were seeing the finish line in sight, uh, but little did we know it would be another uh, nine years. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Michael uh, unfortunately passed in 2019, uh, and I was uh, fortunate to um, find a great home for it uh, at University of North Carolina Press and bring it to completion. Now, what makes this uh, uh, dictionary really fascinating to me is it's it's not just a collection of words, and it's also not just the the citations that are that tell you so much about the places uh, that these words come from, but uh, you all have have in in fact kind of uh, analyzed the the syntax and the and the grammar and um, and the way that that certain words and certain phrases. Uh, get incorporated in, into the language. The way that uh, comma running is, uh, is, is kind of an example of using the a running, a gunning, uh, a cooking uh, as a, uh, it's a regular feature of the language. I mean, there's a, a whole bunch of other examples of this and it, you really treat it as if it's, as if it has its own grammatical rules, which I guess it does. It does indeed. Yeah. And the example you're giving, we call that uh, a prefixing, excuse me, a prefixing or a prefixing. Yeah. Right. It is very rule oriented, um, just like any language or any variety of any language. Um, and that was one of the pieces of the dictionary that we felt was really important to include. Um, so there is a pretty hefty grammatical survey, as we call it, in the front matter of the dictionary. And a lot of this is based on some of Hall's research, also some of Michael's research, and then some of my research as well. Um, so we tried to provide um, a fairly complete picture of that. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of rules. Um, there's a lot of research that could still be conducted in that area, I believe. Now, of course, a lot of that would be a little bit too uh, high flown for the average reader. And the average reader is probably uh, maybe not the, not the customer for a uh, you know, $169 uh, dictionary. Uh, but then, then again, the, the, the citations themselves that draw from Civil War letters, for example, and from interviews and from the, the great recordings that, that Hall did, um, that, that's a very different story. And they're, they're, it's a great narrative uh, about, about that world. So even people who are not interested in grammar and uh, etymology and such would find, uh, would find a lot to read in this book. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of our primary objectives in designing this expanded edition was to make it as appealing to as broad an audience as possible. Uh, we want everybody from genealogists to historians to linguists to your grandparents who maybe grew up in the area or maybe their grandparents grew up in the area and they remembered certain fragments of words and, and games from their childhood. Um, we wanted it to be as much a browsing volume where you can just have it as a coffee table book. And it's, it's really a beautiful book. If I do say so myself, I think it would look <laughs> lovely on a coffee table. Uh, but at the same time, we wanted to make it um, somewhat scholarly as well, or very scholarly, really, uh, in an approachable way so that researchers could use it as well. The the uh, the utilizing uh, the uh, Civil War letters, uh, and there's there's a lot of those, you might be able to uh, correct me on the number, but um, 
and also interviews with people uh, that, that Hall encountered, many of whom were born in the 1800s, some of them as early as 1840, um, gives a, a, a lot of this sort of old world uh, terms, many of which I suppose have, have disappeared, uh, but, but luckily they were caught before they went away as a result of that kind of thing. And this is something that uh, that's one of your specialties is sort of catching uh, a, a, a dialect for it before it vanishes. Um, you did the same thing with uh, uh, the people who, uh, from an island in the Okinawans, from what I understand. Yes, that's true. When I was a graduate student, uh, my focus was actually on um, an indigenous language or dialect, depending on your perspective, right. uh, the island of Miyakojima in the Okinawan archipelago of Japan. Um, yes, I'm very interested in that. And um, you mentioned the Civil War letters. Um, that was a big part of my research uh, with this dictionary project. And I spent countless hours um, in the basements of the Thomas Cooper Library at the University of South Carolina uh, and at other um, institutions going through literally thousands of these letters. Um, and it was, uh, it was remarkable to read their words in their own hand and uh, really be able to capture those words that otherwise you know, might not be around or have taken on different meaning today. I would guess some of those uh, letters were kind of heartbreaking too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there was a lot of loneliness and solitude and um, especially some of the later letters uh, where you might have action from one soldier and then you see that the letters just abruptly stop and you're not sure what happened. It was, you know, almost like living a little real life soap opera every time I would go and do this research. Um, and it was such a, a visceral connection to the past. Um, it was really an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. Now you grew up uh, on the uh, on the coast of North Carolina, and uh, moved to Ohio uh, when you were a, a kid. Is that right? Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Yes, yeah, I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, lived in Ohio as a kid, also Louisville, Kentucky. Um, yeah, I spent part of my summers in East Tennessee, uh, but I never really lived in the Appalachian region as a child. So, and you were telling me earlier, the, um, uh, the, the people in Ohio listened to this uh, girl from Wilmington talk and thought she sounded like she was from another planet. And you did the best you could to expunge that accent. And that is kind of what has happened, I would guess, to a lot of the Appalachian terms and phrases and, and just in the, in the speech itself, because people have purposefully uh, tried to sort of modify and normalize themselves who are from this, from this area. And that must have, been, must have made it even harder to do, do the work that you wanted to do. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, you hit on a really important point there. Um, linguistic assimilation is very important in society, whether we like it or not. There's such an inextricable link between language and power, language and privilege. Um, I was able to recognize it immediately, you know, as a five-year-old child uh, when I moved to Ohio. And I remember consciously trying to mimic my classmates, and I was... Uh, I think I was more or less successful in that until I moved back <laughs> south. I'm in Asheville now, so. 
<laughs> I feel like I can relax a bit now. <laughs> well, it's you know it it it's kind of a of a tragedy though, and uh, and the and the question you know I I I asked you earlier is how much uh, how much of the of the language uh, still survives, and what are some of the some of the examples places where it has it still sort of bubbles up in uh, in the national tongue. I wonder like what would be some places where we would see words that were native to those mountains? That's a great question. Um, we do have certain, I guess certain domains where we have the language more preserved than in other places, um, such as uh, music or other performative venues. Um, but thinking about it on a national level, um, words or structures that would be at least identifiable, if not necessarily used by the general public. Um, like you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the A prefixing, um, not everyone uses it. But of course, if you hear somebody say storms are coming, everybody knows what that means. They know right. that it's a serious storm. Um, you also have other things like um, food items. Um, some of those terms are just, they've stuck around because the food item has stuck around, such as uh, cat head biscuits. Um, now, I'm not sure if those exist outside of this region, but oh, yeah. you do see them on the menu here. And what makes a cat head biscuit a cat head biscuit? It's the size of a cat's head. We like the biscuits <laughs> big. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a good biscuit then. And now, I have heard uh, betwixt uh, and between, and that that's certainly Appalachian origins. Yes, yeah, you will hear betwixt and between uh, quite a bit. Um, and you'll hear some of the kind of tongue-in-cheek things, like um, one that I actually heard recently uh, in the field, so to speak, was uh, it don't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, how does that one go? <laughs> If if something makes no difference, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, it'll uh -huh. make a diffibitterance. A diffibitterance, and so in ways, <laughs> that's that's a typical Appalachian um, uh, 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 conceit, which is they'll take a word and add uh, add a couple of syllables to it or turn them around, like edumacation. Yes. I don't know whether that qualifies, but something like flusterate. If you're frustrated, you're even more frustrated if you're flusterated. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, oftentimes a humorous way of dealing with, well, a, a frustrating situation, <laughs> just to kind of, you know, mix things up a bit and add a little humor in. So, and uh, the, like the word catawampus, uh, probably, probably easy to figure out what it means, but what would you say the proper definition of catawampus is? Catawampus. Uh, we have a couple of senses of that, but I think the one that I hear uh, most often is if something's kind of catawampus, it's kind of cockeyed. It's uh, not quite straight. Doesn't quite fit. Something's a bit off about it. Yeah, and uh, the we we were talking earlier about the the terms. There's food terms. There's weather terms. There's work terms. Oh, yes. the terms I. Uh, I found a, a, a variety of words that uh, all describe different kinds of rain, which is appropriate if you live in a rainforest. Frog strangler was one of my favorites, and uh, uh, trash mover I liked because uh, 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 it's uh, probably that's what it does as well as uh, that's what it is. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, sadly, <laughs> and I think a lot of that, a lot of that also probably has to do with when the rivers flood, uh, because right. there's so many structures along the river. Um, yeah, when those flood, they will move the trash, and then you have other colorful uh, uh, words for rainstorms like that, like you mentioned, frog strangler, frog drowner, gully washer. Now, and and then again. A trash mover can also be uh, by uh, uh, by corollary an energetic person, somebody who is also a uh, like a like a storm. Um, hmm. uh, reading from one of your definitions, there, how, how, is that a positive or a negative thing? Well, I think that's up speaker in the situation. <laughs> right, <laughs> kind of like bless his heart. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, did uh, did you uh, did you find any words that ended up sort of attaching themselves to your own vocabulary, your own lexicon? Did you uh, uh, do you find yourself using them as a result of uh, of studying them? That's a good question. Um, you know, one of the ones that I found in my own research was um, "shake the cat" or "cat shaking." Uh, which has to do with uh, quilt making, actually. There was a tradition um, when, uh, I forget, there's a couple of variations of how this goes, uh, but typically the women at a gathering uh, would take a quilt and they would all hold on to the edge of it, you know, around the, the perimeter of the quilt, and <laughs> they would put a poor cat in the middle oh, of it, God. and they would they would bounce it around, and then wherever the cat jumped off, whoever it was closest to, that would be the woman who would have the first child among the group of the women or, you know, <laughs> kind of like a fortune telling exercise, but it, it always struck me as pretty cruel. Um, I'm actually involved in animal rescue volunteer work. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I'll use that in a very facetious way. <laughs> the, the uh, uh, well, it's, it's one way to find out uh, uh, the, uh, a lot of answers to a lot of questions. Um, the, <laughs> I, I, uh, so, and, and we talked about this before, but do you see um, do you see this sort of language in danger of disappearing? Has it already disappeared? I would say it is unfortunately on its way to disappearing, although I do think it will be preserved uh, indefinitely in play, uh, country music. Uh, we do have some kind of gatekeepers of certain certain flavors of Appalachian English, such as Dolly Parton. Um, so yeah, unfortunately you don't hear it that much in everyday conversation, especially in bigger cities, uh, even within the region, um, such as Asheville. Uh, but if you go a little bit outside the city limits, it is definitely still there. There's still a presence. Hey, are there any Dolly Parton lyrics that are uh, used as citations in, uh, uh, in the book? You caught me off guard with that one. I'd like to say yes, but none come to mind. I will have to get back to you on that. I hope so. <laughs> the uh, uh, I, I remember one of her uh, explanations for how you were how how you could wash in a tin tub in a house that only had one room was you had to you pull your trousers up and you wash up as far as possible and then you pull your 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 dress down and you wash down as far as possible and then when nobody's looking you wash possible. Great. <laughs> she's a she's a a great resource. You know, one of the things that also we talked about, and, and uh, I'm not going to hold you forever here, but the uh, the 
the whole region is um, is kind of a center of a lot of myth making, and you've got the Hatfields and the McCoys, and you've got uh, sure. you've got the the scary characters from Deliverance, and uh, you've uh, you've got a uh, uh, this this sort of mythologized. Uh, Chaucerian speakers who supposedly would be recognized by uh, anyone from Elizabethan England they traveled far enough into the mountains. Um, you've, you've pointed out that that, in fact, is a lot of hogwash. There are no Elizabethan speakers in the mountains in Appalachia uh, or Appalachia. But uh, the uh, but reason we seem wedded to doing this, why is that? Yes, it's hogwash indeed. Um, people in Appalachia speak no more Elizabethan than your typical uh, American. <laughs> um, people do like to cling to that. I think uh, Appalachia is still seen as, as you said, this kind of uh, place full of mythology and you have the mountains, which are, you know, by turns romantic and spooky, groves uh, that hide their secrets. And I think a lot of it also um, goes to kind of the noble savage trope um, where, you know, we have these backwards people, but actually underneath it all, they're close to Shakespeare and Queen Elizabeth. And it's, it's just not true. The culture developed, you know, like any culture. Um, and, you know, we have modern conveniences here like anywhere else, although we do have mountains that are more beautiful than many parts of the country. I will say that. Aha. Uh -huh. There's mythologizing right there. Although I think if, <laughs> if it's fact, uh, it ain't it ain't myth. So, uh, and I, I will agree that they are beautiful. Um, Jennifer Heinmiller, uh, you created a great book, and I appreciate you taking time to uh, chat with us about it. Um, and tell us uh, where folks can find uh, find this book and and a variety of forms that they can find it in. Sure. Uh yeah, you can order the book uh, from the University of North Carolina Press website directly. Um, you can find it at local bookstores. Now, it is a huge volume. You may have to do a special order for it, uh, or there's always Amazon or Barnes and & Noble. And uh, if, if you're getting uh, uh, 10 of them delivered the, the way your dad did one day, how much is a box of those going to probably weigh? 120 pounds, thereabouts? That's about right. Yep, at 12 pounds a pop. It's um it's pretty hefty. So if you need a workout, I recommend ordering multiple volumes. Well, I admire your father for carrying those inside. And I appreciate <laughs> so do I. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you taking time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Long before Kendall Robinson was handpicked a few weeks ago to interpret the social impact and artistry prevalent in the film Candyman, word of her work was already circulating among collectors and children's authors across the country. When she was asked to submit her resume and portfolio to Universal Pictures and its partners, Robinson didn't hesitate. That was in late July. A week or so later, she learned she and five other HBCU art students had been selected from more than 100 HBCU campuses across the country. Read the rest of the story about this up-and-coming artist on AJC.com. The entrance to the art of Banksy, without limits, making its North American debut at Underground Atlanta for a four-month run, is actually an exact reproduction of part of a 2015 art installation in England by Banksy and other artists called Dismaland, a dystopian theme park that skewered the disposal cheesiness of life today. In other words, it's the Banksiest gateway possible. 
Not authorized by the artist, The Art of Banksy has been touring the world since 2016 and has been seen by more than 1.2 million people in 12 cities. The Underground Atlanta version is the biggest Art of Banksy yet, at 33,000 square feet, about double the usual space, with the most art yet. 158 works including stenciled wall mural reproductions, original prints, lithographs, sculptures, videos, and multimedia installations. Find out more about the exhibition on AJC.com. Atlanta, which famously dubbed itself the next great international city, really has become just that. Every week there are international festivals, cultural performances, social gatherings, lectures, lessons, and food tastings that will excite your wanderlust, widen your horizons, introduce you to new forms of expression, and maybe put an extra pound or two on you. Certainly COVID-19 has forced many, especially the festivals, to cancel for a year or two, or drastically downsize, but that doesn't matter. A community's culture and heritage are celebrated with the same joie de vivre as ever. Whether it's the upcoming Japan Fest, the Cinema Italy Atlanta Film Festival, the various Oktoberfests, or the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company, there's always something going on that allows us to celebrate our heritage or learn about those of our neighbors. Get all the details about the many international offerings in and around Atlanta and our story on AJC.com. Four-time Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and guitarist Jason Isbell is scheduled to perform with his band, The 400 Unit, on Saturday, September 12th at Terrapin Beer Company in Athens. It's a homecoming of sorts for Isbell, who first found fame at a young age as a member of the Athens-based Drive-By Truckers. Since then, the Northern Alabama native has not only grown in stature as a musician, but has become something of a left-leaning cultural icon, helping to define what the truckers Patterson Hood once dubbed the duality of the Southern thing. You'll find our interview with Isabel on AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.